I'd just like to say a, a word, a couple words of thanks. Um, Peggy, I want to thank you for putting together that confession of sin and the intercession that came and was part of that. That was very meaningful for me, and I think many of us are probably drinking deeply of your words as we uh, filed our own hearts being brought before the Lord in candor and honesty, and that, that offertory, uh, exactly the same, uh, Luke and the choir, I want to say thank you so, so very much. Um, the Spirit of the Lord is at least never felt, I don't feel the presence of the Spirit of the Lord ever as much as when we're taken into the heart of the gospel and our need for mercy. And uh, that's what's been happening throughout the course of the worship service today. And I appreciate it. I just want to say I appreciate it very much. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Second Samuel uh, chapter 7. And yes, I'm going to read the whole chapter. And it's really good. And you know, I was just thinking, the word of God, the scripture, is, was written in the vernacular. You know what the vernacular means? Vernacular means common language. It was la- written in language so that everyone could understand it. Uh, it's not highfalutin. Uh, it's not intended to be uh, read as, uh, as a heavenly language apart from an earthly language. God's revelation to us comes so that we can understand it. We can learn about him. And... Uh, and then we're told all these amazing, uh, given all this amazing history, so many narratives, not just outright instruction, but narratives, to really show us in the context of our own humanity, uh, to teach us in the context of our own humanity who God is, what he's like, and the truth about ourselves. So I think it's pretty great. So as I read Second Samuel chapter 7 today, uh, I, I may, I hope you don't mind, because this isn't for show, I may actually kind of walk up and down the aisle a little bit as I read this and make a few comments. One of the reasons I want to do that is I want to make sure you're actually reading the Bible and uh, I don't have to, you know, discipline you in some way. Um, we're taking this up with, with David in Second Samuel 7. It says that when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now, let's just read this together. Not out loud, but let's read it. The king said to Nathan the prophet, Behold now, I dwell in a house. It's of cedar. That's the best wood. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Because really what David was saying, I got a house, God doesn't have a house. I want to give God a house so he has a nice house like I do. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. God said to this prophet, he said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Now, is everybody reading along with me? This is a really pretty amazing story, isn't it? In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel when I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house? Now, therefore, this you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, 
that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, your seed after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, how would you respond to that? Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. He said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. That's comparatively small with what he's just promised, you see. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. You know, this isn't just about me. This is about the entire human race. This is about eternal salvation. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise And according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. And therefore, you are great, O Lord God. You are great. There is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its God. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word you've spoken concerning your servant And concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever. Saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant. Saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever.
Father, I want to ask you that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. Lord, my God and my Redeemer, amen. Well, now I'm going to ask you to radically change gears for a moment because I want to tell you a little story. You know, when I went off to, uh, when I went off to college, I just knew that my parents had to feel wretched about not having me live with them anymore. And how could they not? So when Christmas rolled around, I came up with a perfect replacement gift for them. A pet. I didn't ask them if they wanted a pet. I knew they needed a pet. So I gave them a parakeet. I gave them a parakeet cage that cost more than the parakeet. I gave them some parakeet toys. I gave them some parakeet food. There's a theme going on here. You can just see what I'm saying. And so then on Christmas morning, like a magician, I whisked away the sheet and uncovered the bird to draw the maximum response. They were stunned. (laughs) I went back to school in January for my final exams and then I was driving back home from the University of Illinois and I was just looking forward to witnessing this wonderful growing bond between my parents and their parakeet. And I walked through the front door and there was no bird. There was no bird, there was no cage, there was no trace that that bird had ever been in our house. And it fell to my precious and my dear mother to explain to me that they had found the bird a better home. When I saw my brother last weekend, I learned that that bird was gone within an hour of my going back to college. (laughs) Now, this, my friends, is a case study in presumption. Assuming that I knew what my parents needed when they needed nothing of the kind. And obviously, isn't that a great entrance into 2 Samuel 7. This is really one of, the, one of the most important theological chapters in the entire Bible. One of two or three, uh, maybe four, of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. Because in this passage, God extends the covenant that he made back in Genesis 12, 15, 17 with Abraham and his seed. He extends that covenant he made with Abraham specifically to David and to his seed. So again, in this passage, I read it, you heard God's rarest promise. I will make your name great. He had only applied that to Abraham before, and now he would only apply it to David and to none other. I will make your name great. And then he also used, in speaking to David as he had to Abraham, that unfathomably far-reaching Hebrew word translated forever. And it's not just used once. It's used six or seven times in this passage. Forever, 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 forever. And so regardless of what God was saying to Abraham about his immediate offspring, Solomon, There was clearly the broader dimension of this promise, and it's that broader dimension that David really was holding on to in his response. 
God emphasized this term. It was his emphasizing of this term forever that left David so stunned. The Lord underscored it in his climactic conclusion to his revelation in verse 16. When God said to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. And what could David do? But go into the tent before the ark of the Lord and just sit stunned in wonder. In 2 Samuel 7, God made David the recipient of the covenant he had made with Abraham. And beyond the, beyond, uh, the now shared promise of a great name and uh, the everlasting de- uh, blessing, it was also true for David, as with Abraham, that the fulfillment of this promise rested with his offspring. In other words, All these things were so for Abraham and all these things were so for David also because the Lord was linking them to another. And that other would be their offspring who would reign and who would bless forever. Now, from this point forward in time, as the Lord raised up prophets in Israel, throughout the Old Testament period. I want you to note this, that the primary, from this point in time, the primary point of reference from which the prophets prophesied was not the covenant that God had previously made with Abraham. It was now the covenant that God had made with David, primarily. The prophets expounded the promise of a coming eternal king based on this. And though the word covenant isn't used in 2 Samuel 7 of God's word to David, it's used to describe this incident in a number of other places in the Old Testament, including Psalm 89. Now what is interesting to me about this is that this incredible promise of eternal salvation all began with a firm, if loving, rebuke of David For his presumption. Did you see that when I read it? It all really began as part of a a rebuke of David, not a mean or, you know. It was a a general rebuke, but it was a very firm rebuke because the the king had come to to Nathan, the prophet. He was seeking guidance. And he said, and I read it, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. In other words, I have this great place to live in. God has no place to live in. I want to build God a house. God needs a house. And David, or Nathan rather, said to him, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan hadn't consulted with the Lord first. He just sort of blurted it out. But wasting no time, that very night, the Lord came to Nathan and corrected him. And he told him to tell Nathan, essentially, to tell David, would you build me a house? No. He said in verse 11, I will build you a house. That's the way this relationship works. You don't build me a house. I build you a house. But between verse 5, where that question is raised, God raises the rhetorical question, would you build me a house? And verse 11 or so, where he says to David, I will build you a house. There's this intervening six verses in which 
the Lord shows how ridiculous it is that David would think that he could ever do anything for God like build a house. In verse 6, he establishes he had no need for a house. I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving in a tent with the people. I'm fine. I'm good with that. In verse 7, he made it clear he never asked for a house. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And in verses 8 and 9, he makes it clear that he's the one who always provided for his people, for their security. He's the one who provided them with a place, not vice versa. He's always the one who provided. He said to David, I took you from a pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies before you. I've done all these things for you. And that's the way this relationship always works between me and you, between God and human, without human presumption. It works without human presumption. When Nathan said to, when Nathan said to David, go, do all that is in your heart, Nathan was mistaken. When he based it on saying, for the Lord is with you, Nathan was in error. He did not know all that was in Nathan's, all that was in David's heart. David underestimated God. He was overestimating himself. As if he would say, I really know what, what God needs. As if he needs anything. That really is the presumption. God needs a house as nice as the house I have. Well, folks, God is not downsizing. You know, presumption is expressed in more than one way. There's a lot of talk among the theologians and commentaries and so forth about the sin of presumption when we do something and we think we should be able to get away with it. Uh, we think that we're exception to the rule. Uh, you know, we think we can take special liberties. But there's more than one way to take liberty with God. There's also another kind of presumption, not just the presumption that associated with outright sin or rebellion. It's associated with the Lord's servants. And here in this passage, God calls David my servant. And, you know, perhaps you've tasted success in your life. Maybe you've come into wealth. Maybe you've been given an influential position or some, you're given some special regard. That doesn't mean go and do all that is in your heart for God is with you. It doesn't mean, yes, it's good for you now to, to return the favor to God for all the favor he has shown you. That's to make too little of the riches of his grace and glory to you, and that is to make too much of yourself. This is a theme that is struck pretty firmly in the scripture. In the book of Job, this blameless, this righteous man was confronted with his own presumption on multiple occasions in a series of rhetorical questions. Eliphaz asked, Asked Job, can a man be profitable to God? Is it gain to God if you make your ways blameless? Is God somehow better off? If you were righteous, what do you give to God? Or what does he receive from your hand? 
Elihu asked Job. Oh, then as God said to Job, paraphrased in Romans eleven thirty five, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And you know, honestly, if in the most spiritual and blameless of people we find this kind of presumption, I ask myself, you ask yourself, what about the rest of us in whom our flesh is probably not nearly so crucified? Psalm 50 addresses this presumption as well as any passage in the Bible. It's all about presumption, in fact. And it's this, I'd love to read the whole thing to you. I won't. I'd like to commend 50 to you. But it's the psalm that begins this way. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Now, can you do anything for this God? Can you add anything to this God? And the answer is no, absolutely not. And so it goes on to say in verses 10 through 12, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the parakeets in the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. God is merciful to us for the sake of his love. And his mercy is greater than our ability to comprehend because he is greater than our ability to comprehend. His love is everlasting, complete. That means absolute, not just continuous. His love is absolute because he is everlasting. He is absolute. And what we owe him for creating us, every one of the seven billion, billion, billion atoms in your body is nothing compared with what we owe him for redeeming us. It is not quantifiable, even in a silly way, because to redeem us, he gave himself completely. He gave himself completely for us. You know, like David left sitting before the Lord and asking in wonder, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? The gospel is intended to leave us seated in exactly that same place. That's where we belong. God was putting David in his place sitting before God in wonder. Who am I and what is my house that this should be done for me? For me. And I want to underscore with you this morning that God's mercy and his grace to you is the same mercy and the same grace, not an ounce less, as his mercy and grace that so stunned David. It is the mercy and grace of God in Christ.
No God promised Christ to David. And though the Lord has since then revealed and sent his son for us, so we're later down the line, you know, it remains just as true for you as it was for David. That what the Lord has done for you thus far is nothing compared with what is to come. Now David taught this to his people. He taught this to the whole congregation of Israel because he understood that what God had promised him was not for him. It was for God's people. It was for God's people that an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom would be established. It wasn't for David's glory. It was for the good and salvation of his people. And so David took this experience that he himself had had and he translated it into psalms for the people themselves to sing. Such as from Psalm 40. We sing these songs. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Psalm 139. How precious to me. That's a paraphrase. Be how precious about me or toward me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I mean, this is unquantifiable. God's revelation left David deeply humbled and caught up in a thoughtful reflection about God's goodness and God's greatness. And it not only humbled him, It not only left him in reflecting, reflecting on this amazing salvation. It also energized David in a new way. For rather than thinking in terms as a successful Christian, or a Christian who'd made his way, or a Christian who'd been greatly blessed, rather than being caught up in thinking about what he might do to God or for God in return, He was caught up in calling on God to do all that he had purposed, all that God had purposed to do. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. The impact of understanding and of receiving the truth of Christ, receiving the gospel has always been to leave us humbled, losing ourselves in Christ, praying as Christ taught us to pray because our heart has been transformed to have that frame of reference, that whole new perspective on ourselves and on all reality. The gospel's always had this impact on us, that we would lose ourselves in Christ to the end that Christ would be manifested and reflected in our own lives. And I want to say that this is how God preserves you. This is not for an extraordinary man or woman of faith. This is for every one of us to lose ourselves in Christ, to sit and wonder at his salvation. And he becomes manifested in us. 
And it's for every one of us to do this. I could give you 10 reasons, I suppose, if I was a good theologian, but I just want to underscore one thing that may surprise you. One of the reasons it's for every one of us to do this is because we are vulnerable. And we, when we do not have this disposition toward ourselves in Christ, we are more, far more easily tempted and misled. Because ultimately what we're talking about, in presumption, I suppose, really, is human pride. When David lost sight of the Lord, and you know he did lose sight of God, sitting before God in, in 2 Samuel 7, you say, well, yeah, how could 2 Samuel 11, or the verse where he sins, how could that happen? Well, he lost sight of the Lord, that wonder, that reflection, that energy, that vitality, and a Godward direction when he set his sight on Bathsheba. And he resorted to presumption of the worst kind. I said there was more than one kind. His was the worst kind there because he regarded himself so highly. He regarded himself so highly that he took sin too lightly. And how short was that space between David wanting to build a house for God and his murder of another man to cover up his adultery with that man's wife. And I would say to us in all sincerity, when we congratulate on ourselves on how benevolent we are toward God, benevolent means goodwill, how much we want to bring goodness to God or blessing to God, we congratulate ourselves for our benevolence, that we are not like other men. We have already taken the first step away from the terra firma of God's grace and into the thin air of presumption. God's mercy and grace to us, which ought to overwhelm and subdue our egos forever and give us an understanding of God and his greatness that leaves us truly humble. God's grace is the only ground on which we have to stand before him. This is the only perspective from which we can see ourselves clearly. And the less highly we think of ourselves, and this is not about beating ourselves up and being psychopathological, it's about reality. The less highly we think of ourselves, vapors that we are here for such a short period of time, the more clearly we'll be able to see God and the more honorably we will treat one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this portion of your word. And I would ask you that you would apply it to all of our hearts. Lord, we so want to be your people. None of us are God's man. There was only one person who was God's man. That's your son. But we do want to be in your service. And we do love you. We think of Mary, how she sat at the feet of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd be working in us. That like David, we would be caught up in the wonder of your great promises to us. That we'd be humbled by this, that we would reflect on this, that this would reshape our lives and give us a new energy and vitality in living as Christian people that truly reflects 
the evangel, the gospel, the truth of the Bible, your revelation forever. Amen.